Okay, so Sarah, when you were growing up, what types of books did you read? So I was a total bookworm. We lived down the block from the local public library. And I distinctly remember having one of those gigantic bookshelves in my room. I was so lucky, but I, it was stacked with things like the Babysitter's Club and Encyclopedia Brown and Choose Your Own Adventure. You're like making this face while you tell me this. <laughs> I'm like remembering my childhood room with the ridiculous pink rug and all of these things. So I just got transported back to my childhood home, which was just weird. Right. Okay. So of the books you listed, or maybe some others that come to mind as we talk, do you remember any characters who you like really resonated with? I mean, the babysitter's club, weren't we all teenager girls babysitting other people and like doing happy go lucky things? Sort of. But I think <laughs> I know where you're getting at. Yeah. Cause this is my next question. Did those characters that you resonated with look like you? Nope. <laughs> right. If you're listening, remember, I am Japanese and white. I have grown up in a, you know, mixed race home where I lived in a very white community. And I felt like the books transported me into that same community, but I never saw myself in any of those places. I never belonged in a book that I've ever, I still to this day feel like, are there any biracial characters that I've read about recently? I don't know. Certainly not many. So no, I don't think any of them look like me at all. How about you for all of those questions? So I was also a bookworm. I think I wrote this LinkedIn post about it, but it, we used to go to two libraries every weekend. Oh my God, I'm shaking my Right? Okay. So, and we used to check out like the max that you could check out on kids' library cards, I think at a time was 10 books. And so we check out 10, I'm just watching your face because you're giving me this look. So we check out 10 books from one library and check out 10 books from the other library. So yeah, I read a lot. Dude, for anybody who can do basic math right now, okay, that is at least two books a day and you still wouldn't finish them by the time you went to the library the next weekend. <laughs> who are you? This is why, I, okay, well, and then you're gonna ask that again once you hear like what books I read. Cause okay, yeah. yeah, I was a really uplifting child, I think, cause I, <laughs> Reading. Judging by the fact that you wear black all the time, <laughs> let me guess. I mean, black is wonderful. Ooh, many meanings on that. Yeah, I, right. But I read books about oppression, struggle, and resistance, <laughs> like the Holocaust. I read about Hiroshima and the like the A-bomb. I did read that book, Hiroshima by John Hershey. Yes, but it was always stories of people whose voices were silenced, like a lot about the Underground Railroad or like people struggling. Boxcar children, did you read that? No. Uh, <laughs> I never read a Babysitter's Club book, as you now know. I'm very glad folks that Misasha and I met in college when she was through this phase, but uh, maybe <laughs> she's never really passed through it yet. <laughs> I know a lot of random historical trivia, which also explains why I love history I think so much to this day. Did they look like you? They didn't for the, I mean, there was no biracial characters, I think out there. I can't remember ever reading one. I think Lisa C. S. E. E. this author who writes about, who is biracial or multiracial, who writes about sort of the Asian immigrant experience or different Asian experiences. I think she has a biracial character, but I mean, I had to really think hard about seeing myself in that I can't really. That's it's so interesting. I love that you asked this question. How about anybody listening, right? Like, did you picture yourself as one of the characters in the books you read or did they not ever represent you? Because this next conversation is for all of those of you who grew up not seeing yourself in books. 
And also for those who did and want to understand what it feels like to be othered, because today we're super excited to speak with Abigail Hingwen, who's the author of both the New York Times bestselling book, Love Boat Taipei, and the recently released Love Boat Reunion. And we get to hear all about her writing journey, why she writes young adult books, the characters in this latest book, Love Boat Reunion, and why it's so important to have more Asian voices and characters, or really even just diverse characters doing very normal things in the books that we read and those that we share with other people. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And as we discussed, we are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misashi. We are so excited to have you here today on the podcast. Would you please introduce yourselves for our listeners? Yeah, it's so great to be here. I'm so thrilled to be part of your conversation. Thank you for having me. So we have moved in the same circles by virtue of going to the same college and law school. And I also heard Jerry Wan mention that on your wonderful Dear Asian Americans episode, which was so great to listen to. What I really love is that even, you know, given those similarities and those common th experiences we share, our paths are now so different over, you know, 15 years post-graduation from law school. I was going to say 20, actually, when I first wrote out these notes, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that's almost true. How old are we? So I would love for you to give us the backstory. You know, you're a Harvard College and Columbia Law graduate. And how did you pivot from that into writing novels? And, you know, what was the reaction of your peers along the way? So I have been writing for probably my whole life. I started telling stories to my brother and sister when we were much younger, those were oral stories at the time. And then I began writing in earnest when I was nine, uh, mostly journaling. So I spent like years and years journaling. And even at Harvard, I would write short stories that I remember my friends posted online. And you know, that was the beginning of the internet. And we all were making web pages. And I remember a period when all our web pages got taken down, a friend of mine actually saved my short story. And these were things that were footprints that I looked back on later, you know, after I became a serious writer and realize, oh, those have always been there. And I just didn't know. I didn't know to like tie them all together. I didn't know I could be a writer. And that I think is partly because I never saw anyone like me. I never read any works by anyone like me. And I just didn't seem like the stories that I had inside me were, were things that would actually ever appear in a, a book anywhere. But at Harvard, I studied, studied international relations and government and then went to law school. And a lot of what drove me was things, issues of social justice. I'd grown up in a family from the Philippines and Indonesia and had visited the Philippines a lot growing up, would see the slums, would talk to my family about race relations there, international relations, and was always very different than the experiences I was having in Ohio growing up as an Asian American girl in a primarily, predominantly Caucasian community. And as I was progressing in my career in law, I was doing everything on the path to becoming a law professor. I had worked on the, the Law Review, the Columbia Law Review, it had written an article that had actually even won a national award. And I was clerking on the DC circuit. And at that point, I was supposed to write the article that would put me on the market. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I felt like five people would read it. It would move the needle for no one. It wasn't inspiring at all to me. And I had this fantasy novel in my head swimming around. And my husband was like, you know, you're so excited about it. Why don't you just try it? And I did. And it just came pouring out of me. I had friends who read it overnight. And they're like, this is amazing. And so I sent it out in the world, got rejected by all the agents. Um, but I did have a couple agents say like, you know, this is really interesting. Why don't you send us your next work? And so that kind of kept me going for the next 10 years after that. I wrote five novels on the way to Love Boat Taipei. I ended up getting an agent. I came close to two publishing houses, couldn't get through the gates at the time. It was before Crazy Rich Asians. 
in Hamilton. And, but I had enough bites that just kept me going. And eventually I decided to get my MFA, which I got at Vermont College of Fine Arts and Love Boat Taipei published at draft 31 of that novel. So it's definitely been a really long journey. But I would say like, at the same time, I was doing the traditional path of practicing law. I went in-house to give myself more time, but I got to work on venture law and work with the startups. And so that fueled me in different ways creatively and while I was still writing on the side. And now my creative life has just grown larger and larger. So in May of last year, I left my corporate job for good. And I'm now full-time immersed in content creation, which has been so fun. That's so freaking cool. Oh my gosh. I heard so many different things there too. You know, what you mentioned about representation, people needing to break barriers for Asian Americans. So I would love to hear a little bit about writing Asian characters as an Asian woman, specifically because, you know, sometimes when people read stories about like a group other than white people, they're like, oh yeah, like we've done that. Like Crazy Rich Asians is out there where we've done the rich Asian story, for example, as if One story about Asian people covers all possible storylines, right? And after, as you said, Crazy Rich Asians, we did see, like, with that, some more Asian-centric storylines coming out, you know, as second-generation immigration stories, like Always Be My Maybe. Mm -hmm. Like, there have been things that have come out, but in our reading and viewing of all of these other Asian narratives, your storyline feels totally different. And there are a lot of nuances to explore, and and we're just starting to scratch the surface on how many different stories of Asian people we can tell. So can you talk a little bit more about what you sort of touched on there? Like, how do you want to shift the needle on representation? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right question. Representation, I think, is meant we put in the token person, right? There's, I think, all of us growing up in our generation had that experience of being probably the token Asian American girl in many situations. And that's a lot of pressure, right? To carry the entire weight of your gender and your ethnicity. And I think really what we need to move to is that it's not about representation. It's just stories. We're human stories. And, you know, with my work with Love Boat Taipei, it had a cast of over 30 different Asian and Asian American characters. And my hope was really to showcase that diversity within our community and showing, you know, a diversity of interests. So I had characters who were interested in running for office and dancing and um, and studying computer science and pursuing medicine, right? Some of the traditional as well as the non-traditional paths. And then in personalities, they're also different. Like I had shy characters, I had outgoing ones, rambunctious ones, screw-ups, as well as people who are successful. And I think there are infinite stories in our pipeline and there are infinite ways to tell them. And I, I want to see all those stories out there and being told in their own ways. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, speaking of that representation, something that's actually really close to my heart uh, when it comes to Love Boat Reunion, you know, the character... Xavier, how do we say it? I'm like, I'm so used to seeing it on paper that how do you say Xavier? It's Xavier in the audiobook. It'll be Xavier in other places. <laughs> so that character you developed with dyslexia and learning differences. And it sounds like dysgraphia as well. And my daughter actually, who gave me approval to say this on the podcast, has dyscalculia, which is another math learning difference. And it's often lumped in with dysgraphia that you mentioned in the book. And she and I have barely been able to find novels that center characters who have learning differences, let alone a book that featured Asian characters with learning differences. And so it means a lot to me to read this, to see that that is also an angle of representation that's hopefully going to be coming up more and more in society. But can you talk a little bit about your decision to write that for this particular character and how the response has been for that? Absolutely. So neurodiversity is something that's really important to me. I talk a lot about it. In fact, I have another book that's coming that's even more centered on the topic. And what I found is that Because so much of the conversation has centered on 
ethnic diversity. And, you know, I think we all felt that growing up where you have an Asian American or an Asian face. And so that ends up being the focal point of your differences and your diversity that these other diversity issues kind of got swept under the table or they were overlooked. So in Xavier's case, he had severe dyslexia and dysgraphia that were undiagnosed for many years. And when he came to the United States as a 12-year-old, as you know from reading the books, his teachers assumed that he couldn't read because it was his second language. And eventually he figured out how to cover it up. And I found that that actually tends to be the case. And actually, I hear it tends to be the case for minority girls to go undiagnosed because their differences in their behavior is often chalked up to it must be a cultural difference or something. Else. And so they're simply missed and then they don't get the help that they need. I think the other aspect of that is that there is still a stigma around some of these learning differences in the community. And so Xavier also is struggling with that. His father does would actually just wish that his dyslexia and dysgraphia would go away and has a hard time understanding it as someone who's neurotypical. And so I think that was something that I also wanted to open up as well as some of that nuance around like, you know what, for dyslexics, learning Chinese might actually be easier because the characters are pictorial, but dysgraphia makes learning Chinese harder, right? So there's so many intersectionalities that I wanted to explore that the character gave me space to do that. So I have enjoyed hearing from other people who resonated with that experience, whether they're similarly wrestling with dyslexia or dysgraphia or, or another type of neurodiversity. And I am excited to just kind of broaden that conversation. And it's part of that conversation, too, about like, what does representation mean? Really, there's so many aspects and so many aspects of diversity. I really love that. I think you're exactly right. And it has been not at all a focus in when we talk about representation. So I, I think it's such an important thing to highlight. So thank you for doing that. And Sarah got to talk about Xavier. So I'm going to talk about Sophie because Sarah knows I love certain things, one of them being fashion, another being sort of intellectual property and thinking about, I mean, they're on a different wide levels. Range yeah, they're on different yes. levels. But, you know, the character of Sophie and, you know, the intersection of AI and fashion, right? And as I was reading her, the parts in the book that really talk about her and her desire to mesh the two. I know that you have a strong background in AI. So how did you, you know, sort of pull that background? And how important do you think it is for a writer or an activist or any sort of person really putting themselves out there in the world to pull from their own base of knowledge versus, you know, basing perspectives solely on research that they've done for the book? So I'll tackle the last question first, you know, research versus your own perspective. What I usually ask when people ask me, like, what, how do you encourage young writers? I say, write what you know, that is an area that you uniquely can write about. Um, but I think if you have a passion to research something, that's also you, right? That's also you driven, like, there's a reason why you're interested in certain things. And so I think you can definitely write interesting books and take on new challenges that are, are more research based. Um, and I think with every project I take on, I still do quite a bit of research. And in, even with artificial intelligence, I have a background, I work in it, my whole family is doing some kind of AI programming. And, you know, I pull them a lot. But I definitely felt that that was a space that needed more conversation around diversity. I found that a lot of people in the AI world are actually quite progressive in thinking about implicit bias, systemic discrimination, because all that gets reflected in this technology that's being created, and that's actually shaping the world that we're that we're living in. So I'm grateful for that. And I found actually it's a really interesting test case for systemic issues or systemic bias in all other professions. And so with Sophie's character, she is extremely girly. She was the boy crazy girl on Love Boat. And I felt like she was actually the perfect person to stick into this very heavily male-dominated industry. And for her to experience, what does it mean to be herself entirely? I felt like in our generation, the advice I got from women, um, even when we were at Harvard, was like, it's a man's world. You need to play it like a man. Or you need to talk about things that men talk about, which are like economics and business, right? And 
yeah, I can do all that. And I work in that, but I also love clothing and I love rom romantic comedies and romance novels. Right. And so like there was an aspect I felt like of ourselves as women that we bring to the table that was being left behind. And it's, you know, same thing with our ethnicity. If we leave all that behind, then like, what is it that we're really bringing other than an imitation? So that's some of what I was trying to explore with her character. I love all of that. And I was thinking about, you know, being like a second year associate and being told exactly that, right? It's a man's world out there. You've got to play. This is, and she was telling me, this is why I dress like a man. And, you know, I'm thinking like, this can't be it. This is, so I really love that you have this character out there that is really forging her own path and doing it in her own way. And all the scenes with her and her professor, I just really loved for a variety of reasons. But it's so funny because I was telling Sarah as we were prepping for this, I'm not typically like a YA reader, but I read Love Boat Reunion in one sitting. Like granted, it was like a really long waiting room type of experience at a doctor's office, but still it was that good and that relatable. And, you know, I grew up with people who had gone on Love Boat. And so it was just the whole concept and, and hearing them talk about their experiences now, you know, much later, it's so much of it resonated with me. And this is the second Love Boat book that you've written. And, you know, I, I want to talk about when you think about book planning and all of that, did you always know that there would be a reunion? And, you know, sort of what prompted you to, to write this next book in this series? And how do you think about, this is like five questions in one, but how do you think about a sequel versus a first book? So I did know that there would be a sequel. When we sold the book at auction, my agent took it out. Um, we All of the offers were for two book deals. And I was really excited to do that because when I had written book one, I wrote it from all four points of view. And there was a point in time when I realized it was just too much story, 120,000 words. And I still felt like it was a really shallow story because I couldn't fit that much into one novel. So I ended up scrapping that entire version at draft 26. And I rewrote the whole thing just from Ever's point of view. But that meant there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. There was especially Xavier's story. Um, very little could really fit into the book based on you know whatever was seen. And I knew that I wanted to delve much deeper into his family, his complicated relationship with his father, which is even more difficult and fraught than Ever's with her family. And then Sophie, as I was you know, as book one was coming out into the world and I was writing book two, I had so many fans really resonate with Sophie's character. And I had a lot of girlfriends say, is there something weird where I actually relate more to Sophie than ever? And I felt like, you know, there's also so much more to her story to explore. And then the two of them together were really synergistic. So I had a great time working the two of them. I think in terms of like series versus one book, I think it's really just depends on the story. I think with Love Boat, there are infinite stories to be told again, because there's so many different characters. And part of the exercise for me with writing book one was like auditioning all these characters and figuring out who are the right ones to go on this journey, who needs to go on this journey the most. And so I think book two was the leftovers of that. And then, you know, for subsequent stories that I'm thinking about, it's really like, well, what are the themes that I want to explore? Do they fit best in this particular vehicle or are they best explored in a different type of vehicle? Like I have other things in the works, TV, film, different forms of novels. And I have a short story out in the world now that's called The Idiom Algorithm about um, a boy and girl in Silicon Valley. And so I think for me now, the exercise is what is the right medium to tell the particular story that I want to tell? That's incredible. And I hope that people listening can like really grasp onto what you just said, which is like the 26th version and you just scrapped it. Like <laughs> writing books of this quality and this caliber obviously require a lot of 
effort, time, and creativity. So I want to ask, you know, specifically YA as a genre, like what do you think we can do by reaching readers of this age? Because I think some of the stuff you're grappling with, you know, when it comes to identity representation, I wish we had more of this when I was in my foundational growing up years. So I'd love to hear from you what you think about that. But also how do you, like, how can we make sure we tell people that this is what it takes to create work and it's okay to create and not have every single bit of your work go to like an outlet. There's a reason for this creative process. Yeah. So young adult isn't today what it was when we were growing up. I would say Wrinkle in Time was considered young adult back then. And today it's considered middle grade. Young adult is the most widely read genre now. And I think we're in a golden age of this literature. What I find is like everyone can relate to that early experience of going through these firsts. So for Love Boat, it's like a first time away from home. It's a first kiss. It's a first boyfriend, a first group of friends forever Wong. It's her first time being around other Asian Americans and her first time in a foreign country by herself. Right. And so those early experiences are things that they come with like their own set of like navigation. And so I think that's something that readers relate to from like age 13 to 90, which is what my readership is. Um, I've loved hearing about the 90-year-old grandma reading with her 15-year-old granddaughter um, across different generations and cultures. And I think what I love about the young adult space is it doesn't have as many borders. I think the adult genres tend to be siloed into things like thrillers and crime and women's fiction and general fiction. And, and I felt like with young adult, you could actually just cross over a lot of these things all in the same novel. So creatively, it was a fun canvas for me to work with. And there was a period when I was trying to master like the teen voice, like early on in my career. And then I eventually just kind of gave that up and I just wrote and that's where we are. Like that, It kind of, it works somehow. So I'm thrilled to have more and more people reading in the space. And I find like most of the activists in the writing world in our generation are actually young adult and middle grade writers. I love that your work is so accessible across generations, because I think that is where a lot of some of our divides are coming from right now is being unable to understand perspectives from different generations. So that story of the 90 year old grandmother, uh, you know, reading it with, you know, a 15 year old, that's amazing. And I hope that those threads of commonalities or are, are finding that common ground can continue. You know, as, as you were talking about writing, and you started writing at age nine, and you know, you've written your whole life since then, I always wonder who people write for, right? Because I do you write for yourself? Do you write for the younger you that didn't have those books out there? Do you write for your kids so that they have they can see themselves in books? I'm just really curious to hear who you write for. Maybe it's all of the above. Yeah, I do think it's all of the above. Usually the first version people say is for yourself. And I do think I was writing to my younger self. I loved Laura Ingalls growing up. I you know, was a lonely kid. And so books were my friends and the characters were my friends. I wanted to live in those worlds and I wanted to live in Laura Ingalls' world. But I knew that if I did drop into her world, her mother wouldn't like me. Her mother hated Native Americans. And even Laura, who's as open-minded as can be in her time, like she would have probably had a lot of questions for me that I might not have been comfortable ask, answering. And so I think I was writing for that girl who loved Laura Ingalls, but wasn't completely welcomed in that world. And then as you edit and go through the revision process, then I think it becomes more an exercise of how can I help people immerse in the world and understand like where the characters are coming from. I feel like a big part of my job as the author is to help create those connections between the reader and the characters. And so they can walk in their shoes as closely as I'm walking. That's fantastic. You mentioned earlier that you have a couple different ways to bring characters to life, right? Different modalities, movies, like your first book, Love Boat Taipei, the first in the series is being made into a movie, which is super 
exciting to hear about. You know, if people want to learn more about you, find your books, where can people find you? Yes, yeah, so I have a website, abigailhingwen.com, and I'm also on most social media platforms with the same Abigail Hingwen on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and Facebook. And I have a newsletter where I send periodic updates so people can sign up there. Definitely, there has been a lot of news coming out now with the launch of book two and the movie we just wrapped filming in Taiwan in January. So I am really excited to share more with folks. But yeah, I think Google searching is you'll find all kinds of stuff. That's awesome. I see those photos periodically on LinkedIn of your filming and I'm like, that looks amazing. So I can't wait for that to come out too. Yeah, we had a great time. So I think folks may know, but um, Ashley Liao is playing Ever Wong and Ross Butler plays Rick Wu. And we also have Chelsea Zhang playing Sophie and Nika Haraga playing Xavier. So I definitely have seen the characters come to life first in the script and then now, you know, on the screen as we were filming has been so rewarding. I like, I can't imagine the joy just looking at your face. You're just, it's, you're glowing with that information. That's awesome. <laughs> is there anything we haven't asked that you think is important for our listeners to know about? I'm so intrigued by the title of your podcast. And I don't know if you've discussed this in previous episodes, but I'd love to hear like, what is it that you're hoping readers will hear? And if there's something that I, that you're hoping readers would hear from me, like I'm, I'm all yours. Our show is really, I think there was one time I referred to it as like a love letter to white women and Sasha started <laughs> laughing because uh, it was on social media. I couldn't. It was on live TV. I could not start laughing at the time. <laughs> yes. But I think for so long, you know, women in this country have been told, you know, like we have to fit into a man's world and that we're othered. And I feel like women have this inherent power and of influence, whether it's in our homes, in our friendship circles, in our workplaces, in the schools, with our voting, with our money. And so I know that women in general have a lot of power, in particular white women, who have that proximity to sort of the top of the pyramid when it comes to race relations in this country. And I only, I think for us, we can only imagine what could happen if collectively more white people thought that about the reality that there are so many more narratives in this world. There's so many truths about how we all show up and experience the day-to-day -day life and the systems that are at play in our country. And so our whole hope is to help more white women really listen and like use their privilege, use their power and their spheres of influence to start making a difference when it comes to uprooting systemic racism. And I think to that, I have two thoughts. One is that we do need to help each other. Like it's still very real. When you, whenever you see a woman in power, they are in, they are fighting. They're fighting to do their work. They're fighting for resources. They're fighting for, to build teams that will carry out you know, their vision, the visions that they were hired to set. And, you know, my, as I grew most senior, I have girlfriends who are partners at law firms. I have friends who are on faculty who are deans and they are all struggling. They need to have business thrown their way. They need to fundraise. And there's so many ways that I think we need to just recognize, okay, this person needs help. Let's, let's find ways to support them and to connect each other. And then the second aspect I think that women in power and anyone in power needs to think about is just what is appropriate. So when I was growing up in Ohio, my parents tried to get Chinese New Year put on the calendar. And I was thinking about it just since we've come through the Lunar New Year. And I remember they were told like that's really inappropriate. And, you know, we laugh now because like in retrospect, oh, is that really so inappropriate? And I think that's what happens every time you are outside the box. Like it used to be people thought it was really inappropriate to breastfeed at work or to pump in your office at work, right? And so there's so many things, so many ways that things that were once considered inappropriate, we now recognize, no, actually, this is necessary if you're going to bring women and keep retain women in the workplace, especially after they've given birth, right? And so I continue to hear that as a grown more senior because we are constantly pushing boundaries still. And so anytime someone ever raises, and I, I still hear it, I start, heard it yesterday about another woman who's fundraising, you know, someone is like, well, why aren't they going through these channels? And 
the answer is because they don't, those channels are not available to them. So I think we always need to question whenever we hear that, that type of pushback, who is defining the narrative and should we buy into that narrative or do we need to create a new one? I appreciate that. Me too. Sarah knows my favorite question is why? Like, why is it that way? And if the answer is because it's always been that way, then that's not good enough anymore. Yeah, it's so problematic. It's so true about going back to really re-experience your parents' culture, because it was what led me after graduation. Like I was dating a white American guy at the time. And he's like, why do you feel compelled to move back to Japan? Like, why do you need to move to Japan? And I'm like, I need to experience my mom's culture. And so therefore I got a job in finance, working in Tokyo. And it was so important to me, even having spent some summers with my family living out in Japan. And so, yeah, I like that you phrased that, even though we'll probably cut that part anyway. Yeah, that's amazing. And when did you find a difference between working in finance there versus the States? A hundred percent. Yes. It was very, very different. It, in fact, even though there were a lot of white people who were in leadership positions out there, the hierarchy was not as pronounced. Like there wasn't this sense of fear of people. Like we all were together in a situation in a foreign country, air quoted, right? Like we were all there together. Sarah and I had very different experiences yes. in finance in Tokyo. <laughs> whenever she describes her experience, I'm like, that was not at all what it was like. But, so. but I attribute this to our names, actually, because I was seen as, even though I speak Japanese with no accent, I had Sarah Blanchard as my name. And so I was lumped in as a foreigner and me speaking Japanese was a bonus. I have friends who are 100% biologically Japanese, but are Japanese American with Japanese names. And they showed up and worked in the same firm and they were expected to serve the clients, speak in Japanese, be subservient, like play that whole role. And so because I was seen as a foreigner, I didn't experience this hierarchical living and, um, so we would go out to hang out with the bosses, you, the guys, the main heads of the company would come sit down next to you and be like, how's it going? And when I moved back to the New York office, all of them were like, the boss is coming, pretend you're working. And I'm like, whoa, this is so different in New York versus Asian offices. So yeah, it was different than Yumi Sasha. That was fascinating. I think that's an example of the intersectionalities. It's more complicated when you dig deeper. Totally. All right. Anything else before I stop recording? No, we covered a lot. Awesome. I'm trying to think if there's anything. Yeah, it's really, it's really, I think, your call of what else you think your readers are, or your listeners would be interested in. <laughs> Did awesome. I answer the question about the 26 drafts? Oh, no. Let's go back to that. That is interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. I think, though. Yeah, do you want to tee it up? Yeah, you know, I don't want our listeners to miss the fact that you just said you scrapped draft 26 of this incredible novel. And so how do you gear yourself up mentally to create and how do you think about the creative process when it comes to the output and what is required to create a great piece of work? Many, many drafts. One of the things I learned in my MFA program was to embrace the spaghetti. So I had an advisor, Am Jenkins, who, when I came to her, I said, I want to learn to be an artist. I don't want to learn how to polish something and make it look pretty, which is something I'd learned in, in my law firm. And even on the law review and as an editor, that's what you do. You polish things and make them you know, make the language beautiful. And I felt like there was something missing deep in the core. And what she taught me was how to write towards the emotional core of every scene and then ultimately of the whole novel. But it takes a lot of work to get there to find what is it that really makes your characters tick? What are their darkest fears, their, their deepest, their weaknesses? And all of that just takes the time of writing different scenarios. Like what was this character like when they were a child? What was this a moment when they were scared, when they were brave? when they were really hurt, maybe that wound has stayed with them, right? And so by allowing yourself to just kind of muck around a play, you come to a much deeper, richer understanding of the characters, and then you can put them into the scenario that belongs in the actual final book. So 
the 26 drafts, it was hard to scrap, but it paid off in the sense that I knew all of my four lead characters so well that I was able to write the whole book with really well-rounded side characters, even though they didn't have their voice directly on the page. And um, I would say every book does take just all those pages of backstory and writing, I think in, in painting, some things you call it like writing in the blank spaces or, or painting the blank spaces. And it's kind of similar. I think all that work does inform the final story. But, and I don't think there's any shortcutting it. You know, I'm taking notes for my younger daughter who <laughs> has said since she was like seven or eight, she's like, don't worry, I'll be fine. I'm an author. I'm going to be a writer and I'll get oh, published. I'm, so. I'm so proud of her already. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel inspired and I want her to hear what you just said. And so thank you for coming back to that. Because I can't even imagine writing 26. How do you keep the story straight? Right. But it's all it's in your bones at that point because you know them like people, your characters like people at that stage. So that's really fascinating. And, and thank you. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.